Chapter Six of In Brief Authority by F. Anstey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Six: Cares of State. Queen Selina was as good as her word. The first thing after breakfast next morning, she retired to her bower and sent a summons to the court godmother, desiring her immediate attendance. King Sidney was engaged in interviewing the Lord Treasurer on the subject of the royal revenue. The Crown Prince and Princess Edna were strolling on the terrace, and Daphne had discovered the board and pieces of a game something between chess and Helma, the rules of which she and Princess Ruby were learning under the instruction of the Countess von Haulemenerschen. So that the Queen, having taken care not to disturb any of her ladies-in-waiting, could count upon being able to deal faithfully with the obnoxious old fairy without fear of interruption. "'Well, my dear,' began the latter, as soon as she appeared, "'I hope you passed a comfortable night.' "'I don't know when I passed a more uncomfortable one, Mrs. Fogelplug. That is one of the things I wished to speak to you about. After being accustomed, as I have, to a spring mattress, all those great feather-beds made it simply impossible to get a wink of sleep.' "'That,' said the fairy, is one of the penalties of being of the blood royal. An ancestress of yours slept in that very bed, my dear, ages ago, before even I can remember. Or I should rather say she tried to sleep, but could not, owing to a pea that had somehow got under the lowest feather-bed of all. It was certainly very careless, if the pea has never been removed. It would also show, Mrs. Fogelplug, that during all those ages, the bed can never have been properly aired. I should have thought it would have been your business to see to that. Then you would be entirely mistaken, my dear, for it is not. And, as I notice that you find a difficulty in pronouncing my name correctly, I may suggest that it would be simpler in future to call me by my proper title, which is High Court Godmother, or Court Godmother, if you prefer it. And while we are on the subject of titles, said Queen Selina, I may mention that it is customary to address a queen as Your Majesty, and not as My Dear. It has always been my habit with sovereigns, and I have never heard it objected to till now. Well, I object to it. But, and this is what I sent for you about, there are other matters I object to even more. I intend to regulate my household on a thoroughly modern and English system, and I cannot have any member of it careering about in the air in outlandish cars drawn by birds. If you must have a conveyance, you must be content with a brougham or a Victoria, for I shall insist on your putting down both those bird cars. You seem to forget that, but for one of them, you would never have come into your kingdom." that may or may not be at any rate there is no further necessity for them and well it just comes to this madam either they go or you do the old fairy's eyes smouldered with anger and her nutcracker mouth and chin champed for a few seconds before she replied i have occupied rooms in this palace when not at the palace of claire de lune over a century and a half, and I have no intention of giving them up. I shall also continue to use the vehicles which I find most convenient. "'Oh?' said the Queen. 
will you? We shall see about that. We shall, the court godmother retorted. I don't think you quite realize yet whom you have to deal with. I may be getting on in years, but both here and at Claire de Lune I am accustomed to being treated with more deference and respect than you seem disposed to pay me. You see, they know that, although I have not used the full powers I possess as a fairy for many years past, I have not lost them altogether. I might see fit to employ them once more, on any person who was rash enough to incur my displeasure. And ingratitude and pride are the failings which I always made it my particular business to correct. You would find it more to your advantage to be on good terms with me. There was no mistaking the veiled threat and Queen Selina no longer doubted the fairy's abilities to carry it out. She was worsted, and her only course was to give in gracefully. "'My dear court godmother,' she cried, "'you quite misunderstood me. I'd no wish to interfere with any of your habits, not in the very slightest degree. All I meant was that, perhaps, at your age, a more ordinary carriage than your present ones might be, uh, safer, you know.' I am quite capable of looking after my own safety, thank you. But, though you are our beloved prince's daughter, you have been brought up in ignorance of the ways of this country, so I am the more willing to overlook treatment to which I feel sure I shall not have to draw your attention again. And now, as we quite understand one another, my dear, we shall say no more about it. By the way, I hear you haven't sent for any of your ladies-in-waiting this morning. How is that? I... I didn't quite like to, court godmother. We're, well, hardly intimate as yet. They are so reserved and distant, especially that Princess Rapunzelhauser. But, of course, she comes of a very high family. She is descended from the famous Rapunzel, whose story is no doubt familiar to you. No? Well, her father was a poor cottager who was caught by an old witch stealing radishes from her garden. She let him off on condition that he gave up to her the child his wife was expecting. Rapunzel was the child, and in due time was claimed by the witch, who shut her up in a lofty tower. However, she had the most wonderful hair, so long that when she let it down from the top window it touched the ground, and so thick that the prince whom she subsequently married was able to climb up by it and make love to her. Now you mention it, I have some faint recollection, and so Princess Rapunzelhauser is descended from her. Well, that would account for... But Princess Golden and Finger something. Now, she does look as if she had some good blood in her veins. The best in Märchenland. An ancestor of hers was king of one of the smaller kingdoms into which the country was divided in those days. One day, when out hunting, he found a woodcutter's daughter living all alone in a hollow tree, and fell violently in love with her. A woodcutter's daughter? Dear me! Then, of course, marriage was out of the question. Not at all. They were married and had children. Unfortunately, there was an estrangement between the king and queen later, as she was accused of having murdered them, and condemned to be burned to death. It only shows what a mistake it is to marry beneath one. This marriage ended happily. It was discovered just in time that the children were alive after all. Still, said the Queen, it is not a pleasant thing to have happened in any family. 
I should like to hear something about the pedigrees of my other ladies-in-waiting. The court godmother was quite ready to give her all the information she could. Princess Flachspinnenlosburg, it appeared, traced her descent from the incorrigibly lazy daughter of a poor and not over-scrupulous mother. Baroness Belonte von Haulemannerschen, from similarly humble folk, whose daughter was servant of all work to seven dwarfs, and afterwards married the king of one of the petty states before mentioned. Baroness von Baungrosdochterheimer's ancestor was a peasant, Countess Gänsehirten Ambrunnen's ancestress a goose-girl, and so on through the entire list. Queen Selina then became curious as to the origin of the gentlemen of her court, and found that many of their forebears were sullied by the taint of trade. The founders of both Prince Topfer von Schneiderleinberg's and Count Daumerlingenstamm's houses were tailors. Baron von Bonenranken derived his title from a speculator who, after a remarkably unsuccessful venture in cattle, had made a colossal coup in beans. As for Prince Hans Meinigel, his pretensions to high descent were even more questionable. At least, if it was actually the fact, as the fairy stated, that the first of his progenitors was not only the son of a poor father, but also suffered the additional social disadvantage of being a hedgehog from the waist upwards, added to which he seemed to have cherished an eccentric passion for playing the bagpipes while riding on a cock. It is true that, after his marriage with the princess, he became a less impossible member of society. Still, as the Queen very rightly felt, there are some things which can never be altogether lived down. "'I am much obliged to you for telling me all this, court godmother,' she said, at the end. "'Most interesting, I am sure. And so useful to know who everybody really is.' It was something of a disillusion to find that her court was so largely composed of parvenus, but, on the other hand, it enabled her to face her ladies-in-waiting in future without any distressing sense of inferiority. She was on the point of summoning them when the king suddenly burst into her bower. "'Selina, my love,' he began, with suppressed excitement, "'if you'll tell this good woman to go, I've something to say to you.' "'Oblige me, Sidney,' replied the Queen, "'by not alluding to the high-court godmother again as a good woman. We may consider ourselves very fortunate that she is doing us the honour of residing under our roof, and you'll be good enough to show her proper respect.' "'Oh, sorry, I'm sure. I thought you said—' But if that's how it is, I apologize for interrupting you. I have said all I have to say, said the court godmother, so there is no need for me to remain any longer. And with that she hobbled out of the room. I suppose you got your way about those, um, bird chariots, my dear, he asked, as you don't seem to have sacked her. She seemed so upset at the idea of giving them up that I said she might keep them. I shall certainly not sack her, as you call it. Now I've come to know her better, I find she is a good, faithful old soul, who is much too useful to part with, and you must be very careful to be civil to her in future. What was it you wanted to say to me? The Lord Treasurer and I have been going into our private resources, he said. I thought perhaps you might like to come with me to my counting-house and, and have a look at them, my dear. She was only too eager to do so. "'Tell me, Sidney,' she gasped as they hurried through various corridors to the wing in which the king's counting-house was situated. "'Shall we—' 
Shall we have enough to live on decently? I don't know what you will think, he replied with an irrepressible chuckle, but I should call it affluence myself, positive affluence, my love. They arrived at a heavily clamped door, where the marshal, the treasurer, and Prince Clarence and Princess Edna were waiting for them. Two steps down, said King Sidney, after unlocking the door. And here we are, he cried triumphantly as they entered. The counting-house was a huge barrel-roofed chamber, lighted from windows protected by elaborate scroll-work bars. Upon shelves all round the walls, and piled in heaps on the floor, were sacks. "'Every blessed one,' explained the king, "'chock full of gold ducats. What do you think of that, eh, my love?' "'I think, Sidney,' she replied, "'that I am the person who should have the key.' "'There's one for each of us,' he said. "'Here's yours. And on that table there you'll find purses laid out, and a little gold shovel to fill them with. I filled mine. Whenever our funds are running low, you see, we've only to come down here and help ourselves.' "'Good biz,' said the Crown Prince, beginning to fill one of the purses. "'I shall fill my pockets as well. Save another journey, what?' "'Some of us do not possess pockets, Clarence,' said his mother. "'And I must make it a rule that no one is to take out more than a purseful at a time, and only after satisfying me that the money is required for some legitimate purpose.' "'I don't think such precautions are at all necessary, my dear,' said King Sidney. "'Marshal Federhelm seems to have put by a good deal while he was regent. And besides, there's plenty more where this comes from, you know?' "'And where does it come from?' inquired the Queen. "'Why, the treasurer tells me we've a mine of our own in the Golden Mountains, a few miles from here. A mine that is practically, um, inexhaustible. I rather thought of driving over to see it some day.' "'Let's all go,' said the Crown Prince. "'Why not this afternoon? It'll be something to do.' Queen Selina was pleased to approve the suggestion. "'We certainly ought to show that we are interested in industrial concerns,' she said. "'All the best sovereigns do. "'I can't help wishing, though, that poor dear papa could have come with us. "'He knew so much about gold-mines.' "'Just as well for us he can't,' said Clarence. "'Because he'd be the boss, then. "'I say, I've got an idea. "'Why not take one of those sacks in the coach with us "'and chuck money out of the window to the crowd, what?' "'Look too much as if we were out for a bean-feast, my boy,' objected his father. "'And what's the matter with a bean-feast? Believe me, it'll make us jolly popular, and it'd be a lot better fun than just bowing to the blighters.' "'And far less fatiguing,' said Edna. "'There's something in what Clarence says,' said the Queen. "'It would increase our popularity, and that is so important. Of course, we shouldn't make a practice of it, but we can quite afford it just for once.' "'What do you think, Mr. Marshall?' The Marshall thought it was an excellent notion. The Golden Mountains were not much more than a couple of leagues from Eswarenmal, and the roads being tolerably good, a lighter vehicle than the state-coach and six-thirty horses accomplished the journey in very good time. In the streets they passed through, and at various villages along the valley, crowds had collected, and the enthusiasm with which they scrambled for the coins that were showered from the carriage windows proved how fully they appreciated the benefits of an established monarchy. "'Don't throw any more now, children,' counselled Queen Selina as they neared the mine. "'We must keep some for the dear miners. Sidney, 
be sure to ask some questions about the machinery, and whether they are all happy and comfortable. And do it tactfully, because I've always heard miners are such a very independent and intelligent class. Perhaps even so short a residence in Märchenland as theirs might have prepared the royal party for the unusual. But it was an undeniable shock to them all to find, on arrival at the mine, not only that the method of working was primitive to the last degree, but that it was entirely conducted by diminutive beings who were unmistakable yellow gnomes. The interior of the mine resounded with the blows of pickaxes, but the inevitable trumpeters had no sooner announced that the sovereigns had left their coach than all work was suspended. The miners swarmed up from their tunnelings, literally tumbling over one another in their haste to behold the countenances of royalty. "'They seem um, a remarkable lively lot,' observed King Sidney, as some of the gnomes turned somersaults and Catherine wheels around their visitors, while the more retiring stood unassumingly in the background on their heads. "'A bit undersized, and, judging from their complexions, I should say the work had affected their livers, but it may only be due to the gold-dust.' "'They don't seem to realize a bit who we are,' complained Queen Selina. "'Sidney, did you see that? One of the little wretches has just taken a flying leap over my very head!' The Baron, who had followed in another coach, explained that these demonstrations were merely intended to express loyal delight. "'Oh, if you say so, Baron,' she said, "'but anyone might easily mistake it for impertinence. If it was not hopeless to expect an intelligent answer from people who seem unable to stay right side up for a single moment, I should like to know what wages they receive, and what they live on. The court chamberlain informed her that the gnomes got no wages, and required little in the way of food, their favourite diet, he believed, being earth. Revolting, was her comment. No wonder they look so unwell. Still, their living cannot cost much, so I should think, Sidney, if we gave the, um, foreman a gold piece to be divided amongst them, that would be amply sufficient. King Sidney thereupon presented a ducat to the most important-looking gnome, who immediately let it drop indifferently. "'Wonder why he did that?' said the king. "'Doesn't he think it's enough?' "'Knows too much about how it's made, I expect,' said Clarence. "'Like the chap at the marmalade factory.' "'Well, it's a pity to waste it,' said his father, picking up the coin. "'I should like to see them at work before we go.' His wish having been conveyed to the head gnome, the whole band rushed— yelping and screeching back into the galleries, seized their picks, and began hacking at the gold which gleamed in veins of incredible richness through the rocky walls and roof of the caves. But perhaps their efforts would have been more effective if they had not been quite so apt to get in one another's way. The visitors then inspected the furnace where the ore was melted, and the mint where it was stamped into big fat coins. These were put up in sacks for transmission to the royal treasury, but, as a fresh batch had been delivered only recently, the supply in hand at the mint was not very large just then. "'I did like those gnomes,' said Princess Ruby on the way home. "'Didn't you, Mummy?' "'I should have liked them better, my dear, if they'd been more like fellow Christians. Sidney, I shall insist on their wearing some civilized costume.' "'By all means, my love, if we continue to employ them.' but I rather think it would be better to get rid of them altogether. Get rid of them, Sidney? What in the world for? Well, you see, my dear, at the last general election I took a somewhat prominent part, 
in denouncing the conservatives for employing Chinese labor in the South African mines. It would be very awkward if people at Gablehurst found out that our entire income was derived from uh, yellow slavery. Stuff and nonsense, Sidney. Who do you suppose is likely to tell them? You never know how things get about, he said uneasily, and as a consistent radical it, it goes against my conscience. Conscience, indeed. My dear good Sidney, if you go and get rid of those gnomes who seem perfectly happy and contented, there'll be no one to dig the gold. We could hire full-grown white labourers, my dear. Of course, at a living wage, but, as they would work more systematically, they would obtain a far larger output, so we should make a handsome profit by the change. Ah, when you put it like that, Sidney, it makes all the difference. I could see for myself that those hideous little horrors weren't taking their work seriously. There is to be a state council tomorrow morning, said the king. It will be a good opportunity to inform them that we do not intend to countenance slavery any longer. That ought to have an excellent effect, Queen Selina replied. I shouldn't wonder if it made us more popular than ever. Why, we're back in the city already. How delighted the dear people seem to see us. Yes, children, you can empty the sack. The love of one's subjects is well worth the money, and it's not as if we were ever likely to miss it. The next morning after breakfast, the king and queen held their first state council. Prince Clarence, of whose business capacity both his parents had a great opinion, being given a seat at the board. There were, it appeared, various measures on the agenda which, as the President explained, were of the highest political importance, being concerned with the settlement of such matters as the precise number of cherries that were to be strung on a stick and sold for a groschen at old women's fruit stalls, the dimensions of the piece of jam that a huckster should be permitted to put in his porridge, whether the watchman's horns really needed new mouthpieces, and if so, whether these should be of ivory or bone, questions which had to be given the fullest consideration and debated at prodigious length before the sovereigns could be asked to affix their signatures and seals to the decrees. Clarence fitted it with undisguised impatience, and King Sidney was more than once under the necessity of raising the golden hand at the end of his sceptre to his lips in order to conceal an irrepressible yawn. But at last the state business was disposed of, and the king was able to introduce his own. It was clear from the vehement wagging of the councillor's white beards while he was announcing the royal intention to emancipate old gnomes at present in the gold-mine that they regarded the new departure with no great favour. The president himself, although he admitted that it concerned the sovereigns more closely than any other person, pointed out certain objections which he begged their majesties to ponder and councillor after councillor rose and protested against the scheme with the utmost solemnity and prolixity. Queen Selina, who was now far more eager than the king to have the mine reorganized on a more paying principle, would have answered the critics herself, if Clarence had not induced her to leave the reply in his hands. "'Well,' he said, rising, "'have you all done? No other gentleman wished to hear himself talk? All right, then.' Now I'll have my little say. Of course, what the venerable old Father Christmas in the chair told you was perfectly correct. If we choose to set these little beggars free, it's no business of anybody but ourselves. The governor, 
that is to say, His Majesty, was merely telling you about it, not asking what you thought about it. Sorry if you don't approve, but we shall get over it in time. And really, your objections, if you won't mind my saying so, are absolutely footling. All they amount to is, because gold mines here always have been worked by gangs of yellow gnomes, therefore they must be for all times. Now that's just the kind of fine old crusted pig-headed conservatism that kept this the stick-in-the-mud country it is. Look at the sort of business you've been wasting our time in yawing about today. Why, in the country we came from, a rural district council would have settled it all in five minutes if they thought it worth bothering about at all. Street lanterns and watchmen's horns and old women's sweet stalls, indeed. If you could only walk through, I won't say one of our cities, that might be too much of a shock for you, but through an ordinary suburb such as we lived in, and saw how things were done there, it would open your eyes a bit, I can tell you. You've been marking time all these centuries, while other kingdoms have been making progress. I'll tell you about some of the things we've learned to do and use, just as an ordinary matter of course, and you haven't so much as heard of. Here he gave them a vivid description of the chief inventions and discoveries of the last eighty years, from the steam engine to the aeroplane, which latter, he declared, put their sixty stork-power car completely in the shade. "'If it is the fact,' said the President, "'that the inhabitants of your Royal Highness's country can work such marvels, you must be even mightier magicians than were they whom our late king so wisely suppressed.' "'You're wrong there, old bird,' said Clarence cheerfully. "'No magic about it, whatever. All done by brains and enterprise. But—and this is what I am trying to knock into your heads—if we'd been governed by a set of stuffy old fossils like yourselves, if you'll allow me the expression, we should never have got a blessed thing so much as started.' Many, if not most of the council, were sceptical as to the possibility of such inventions as Clarence had described but the good old baron assured them that, even during the short time he was in England, and although it was night, he had witnessed many of them with his own eyes, thanks to the powerful illuminance which made darkness almost as light as day. He exhorted his hearers to count themselves fortunate in having gained sovereigns who possessed such wondrous powers, since their faithful subjects would assuredly now enjoy the benefits of them. "'Aye,' said the ex-regent, though possibly not in such good faith as the baron, we shall indeed have reason to congratulate ourselves if his royal highness will graciously teach us how to construct one of these fire-and-smoke-breathing engines that draw a line of wagons along roads of iron, or even a mast that will send messages through a thousand leagues of air. "'You don't want much, do you, dear old boy?' said Clarence. "'You don't suppose I can show you how to build a railway train?' when you haven't got any of the bolly materials or appliances, do you?' "'Your Royal Highness has but to name them, and they shall be procured.' "'They're not to be got here,' replied Clarence. "'If I tried to tell you what they were, you wouldn't be any the wiser.' He spoke nothing but the truth, for he had but the sketchiest acquaintance with the composition of any kind of machinery. "'Perhaps His Majesty,' suggested the Marshal who had long ago taken King Sidney's measure, is better able to instruct us in these mighty secrets. Hmm, well, to tell you the truth, confessed the king, 
although I have been in the habit of using railways, motors, electric light, telephones, and so forth, constantly, I can't pretend to more than a general notion of how they work. Couldn't make any of them, you know. Not my line of business. If that is indeed the case, said the President, we find it the more difficult to understand why His Royal Highness should have reproached us for an ignorance which is no greater than either his own or your Majesty's. Oh, I wasn't reproaching you, said the Crown Prince, a little awkwardly. I was only telling you how differently things are managed where we come from. But after all, that isn't the point, so we'll say no more about it. Let's get back to the gnomes. One of you, I think it was the gentleman with the grey topknot, objected that there was no other useful way of employing them except in the mine. Well, of course, we've thought all that out, he declared, though, as a matter of fact, the idea had only just struck him. We intend to set him to work at laying out a golf links, and when they've done that, we shall keep him on as caddies. They're such nippy little devils that they ought to be jolly useful. Ah, naturally, you wouldn't know what golf is. Well, golf happens to be a thing I do know something about. I can teach you that right enough. It's simply the greatest game going, and you'll be grateful to me for introducing it. Don't worry, he added, as some of the council expressed dissent. Nobody's asking you to learn unless you like. I shouldn't say myself that any of you, except perhaps the marshal, was very likely to shape into a plus man. I fancy he's got the makings of a golfer in him, though, and once I've got the course laid out and given him a lesson or two, I bet you'll see he'll be as keen as mustard. Before the council broke up, the ex-regent undertook that, as soon as Clarence had selected the ground, the gnomes should be removed from their present quarters and placed under the Crown Prince's directions. "'Never again, Sidney,' declared the Queen afterwards. "'Will you and I sit through one of those tiresome councils? We'll leave them to manage their own silly business, and if there's anything that requires our signatures, they can bring the papers to us, and we'll sign them in our own rooms.' If there should be any difficulties, we can always ask the Marshal. He's so very sympathetic and helpful. Very, said the King. Oh, very. That is, I half fancied now and then. But I believe he means us well. Yes, on the whole, my dear, I think he is a person we can trust. You needn't think about it, Sidney, she replied. You can feel absolutely certain— that there's nothing that man wouldn't do for us. End of chapter 6